0: You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm Carol Lenig, an investigative reporter at the Washington Post, and today I'm delighted to have with us here at the Washington Post, Dr. Fiona Hill. She served as a Deputy Assistant Director to former President Trump, and she was also the Senior Director For European and Russian Affairs on the National Security Council, where she worked from 2017 to 2019, a pretty historic period. She's also the author of a book that I've just finished reading, which is fascinating, and it's called There is Nothing for You Here by Fiona Hill, Finding Opportunity in the 21st Century. Dr. Hill, welcome to The Washington Post Live. Thank you for being here. Well, thank you so much for having me. I'm really delighted to be here as well. Awesome. Well, it's funny. I feel like we're looking at each other through a screen, and I watched your testimony as a reporter, so it's it's kind of fun to be able to ask you the questions I wanted to ask you then. Unfortunately, the, all the congressmen were hogging the microphone. Um, you have a remarkable story growing up poor, or impecunious, I think, is one of your wonderful words in your book in the Northeast region in Bishop Auckland with uh, what you describe as a distinctive working class accent that you feared would hamper you there in your opportunities. You studied at Harvard, you became an American by choice as you describe it, going on to serve in, in three White Houses, three American presidents. Um, it, I wanna ask you a little bit about the title of your book. It comes from advice that your father gave you. There's nothing for you here. Talk a little bit about how that led you to this remarkable American story. Well, thanks so much, Carol. And,
1: you know, my dad said that to me in 1984, just as I was gearing up to leave high school. Um, it was against the backdrop of um, just the major, major loss of jobs a massive unemployment uh, crisis in the Northeast of England and across the whole UK, as a result of the reforms of Margaret Thatcher that privatized all of the previously nationalized industries of coal mining, the steelworks, the shipyards, et cetera. And in 1984, uh, for young people like myself, there was very little prospect of finding a job or going on to higher education. In fact, only 10 percent of uh, kids leaving school had something else to go on to. It might have been you know, a place in a college, a technical school, uh, perhaps an apprenticeship for one of the limited um, number of uh, positions that was left in um, something resembling uh, industry. And my dad basically said, particularly as a young girl a, a woman um, just about to embark off on uh, what he hoped was going to be, you know, a career I'd done well at school. He just basically said to me, look, you know, there's nothing for you here, pet. That's the sort of term of endearment, you know, that dad's scholar uh, <laughs> the doctors in the northeast yeah. of England. You know, you're going to have to go on. And, you know, it's great you've got into university, but you're not likely to be able to come back here. And of course, that was like, really sad because honestly, you know, I love my family. I really love the northeast of England. But, you know, here's my dad telling me, you know, you've got to go out and look for opportunities somewhere else because, you know, for him, all the opportunities had dried up too. He actually had a job, one of the very few people who did at that time for him, but it wasn't done before. He was no longer a coal miner. He'd actually worked in the steelworks for a while, the brickworks, you know, all of these kind of jobs, blue collar jobs that were all disappearing. And at that point, he was a porter, an orderly in the local hospital. That was actually a great opportunity because he gave him the next several decades of a job but it wasn't exactly what he thought he would be doing in his life.
0: And it's what, it isn't what he wanted for you either, obviously, or your sister. Um, One thing that I find so compelling about your book, and I read it rather quickly because it was gripping, but also selfishly, it's something that I'm fascinated by, which is the idea that, you know, you connect your experience in Northeast working class England to the economically ravaged communities of America where the president you would serve became so popular because of his populism and his appeal to them. Um, You write in your book about the last 30 or 40 years in the United States and in Russia, these grim reflections of your experience, as you call them in, in hometown in England. What are those economic and political, but really baseline economic struggles of these three major nations, major powers, worry you? Why does that worry you about the state of our democracy? It's the striking similarities between all three
1: that worry me the most because of the way that, particularly in the case of Russia, the collapse of its economy and of course the state um, with the end of the Soviet Union led to a very similar phenomenon that we saw in the UK and also that we've seen here in the United States increasingly over the last 20-30 years, but especially after the Great Recession in 2008 and 2009 that mass unemployment led to, understandably, political disaffection, particularly among those groups that never got any new opportunity in the new world that was unfolding. And in Russia, in the 1990s, you had massive socioeconomic dislocation. You know, people from everything from nuclear engineers to the guys who were on the shop floor of factories lost their jobs as the whole economy collapsed. And by the end of the 1990s in Russia, the democratic development that we saw there was thrown on its head when Vladimir Putin came in. Basically, everyone in Russia was looking for someone to fix things. Uh, political parties weren't uh, doing those jobs. The Communist Party was uh, fading away. Vladimir Putin, who comes up through the back corridors of the KGB, is basically saying, I'm the saviour, I'm the champion. I'm going to fix everything for you. I'm going to make Russia great again. But the idea is that I'm going to put you back in jobs and you know, put us back on uh, a path a familiar path to where Russia used to be before as a great power. Now, we've seen exactly the same thing happening over a different timescale, um, admittedly, in the United Kingdom, where the Brexit uh, referendum in 2016 was about the same thing. Look, you know, life has not treated you fairly, particularly in the north of England, where you know I grew up. 50 plus years of, you know, really no new industry coming in, no new opportunities, I mean, only on a small scale, not sufficient for the large population that's been left there, no opportunities to move somewhere else in search of a job, perhaps emigration. A lot of people, you know, from my family have gone somewhere else overseas. My sister's in Spain. I've got cousins, you know, all over Europe and, you know, the United States, Canada, Australia, this kind of thing as well, because they couldn't find something um, at home. And then Brexit is all about let's, Shake off the shackles of Europe, which is somehow dragging us down. We're paying money to Brussels. They're not bringing anything here. Let's make Britain great again, great Britain. And of course, that's what Trump was saying in 2016 to people in Michigan, Pennsylvania, Ohio, all the U.S. Rust belt where people have lost their jobs. I'm going to fix it. I'm going to make the United States great again. Everything is going to go back as it was for you.
0: That nostalgia is something we'll talk a lot about in a minute. I, I want to ask you about your own experience in America. Here we are viewing ourselves and as the grand land of opportunity, no rigid class structure, uh, no judgment of your accent. Um, is that is that has that been a phony reputation for a long time? You describe, you know, the racism, the sexism, the fight to block. A lot of people from lower socioeconomic rungs of the ladder from opportunity. Is this a bunch of bunk that we've been believing we are the land of opportunity or has it radically been changing in the last few decades?
1: I think the nature of access to opportunities has changed dramatically. I think opportunity is still out there. And look, you know, we may be bemoaning, understandably, you know, the fact that we're no longer quite as exceptional as we seem to be, that we're not immune from flawed leadership. You know, we're having the same crises that many other uh, countries are having. And our politics, you know, seems to be in disarray and gridlock and all the polarization and partisan infighting. But at the same time, the United States is this amazing place of innovation. Look at all the gro- global companies. They're not Chinese companies, uh, not just yet. They're not co- companies from other countries. We have a lot of multinationals. There's an incredible... uh sense of innovation and can-do attitude still within the US private sector and also in communities that have turned themselves around. So part of, you know, the point of writing this book was to actually really look about where are the sources of our renewal going to come from. Our democracy is in really poor shape at the moment. It needs renewing, it needs repairing, that's certainly for sure. And there are so many problems, you know, within our societies that um, are really creating barriers to opportunity. But we know how to break them down. I mean, there's a lot of ideas out there about how to you know tackle racism and sexism and all of the uh, socioeconomic disparities. there's no shortage of ideas. The problem is getting the political will and the collective action. And that's where you know I think that we should be focusing our efforts and energy right now. I think this still is the land of opportunity. The infrastructure of opportunity, the way that people get ahead has changed. But there's a lot of opportunity there to fix this and education i think is probably the critical area because that's become as we're all recognizing and the post is writing about this all the time education now has become the dividing line that's become the new class definition it's not if you're in a blue-collar job it's whether you can have a two-year or four-year college experience because the opportunity i had when i came to the us as i had grants i had subsidies i had no educational debt That is not the case for the vast majority of young Americans or even middle-aged and older Americans who are wanting to retool and re-educate themselves for a new economy.
0: You know, it's really gripping to hear about you know, comparing your experience, which of course you showed in incredible initiative and fortitude, the way you scrapped around to find this scholarship and this uh, internship, you know, that that that's something special for you. But those opportunities were there. You found them and you also found funding and that lack of debt, school debt's really important as well. I, I you describe um, the need for a, a U.S. Marshall Plan, something to really rebuild these economically ravaged areas where Trump's popularity was so strong because just like in Bishop Auckland, people were, were, were hearkening or, or, or hoping for that return to that past sunny Halcyon day. Um, what's your Marshall Plan? And tell me how you think it's going to actually effectively happen. Well,
1: first of all, I think a lot of people have, you know, got this idea. There was, you know, an op-ed in the post uh, that I actually cite in the book by a collection of mayors from, you know, the whole Appalachian uh, region of the US also calling for, you know, a Marshall Plan for um, Appalachia um, and, you know, all the old Rust Belt areas, the former coal mining and steel mining um, areas of the US. In the UK right now, um, there are similarly people calling for a new Marshall Plan for reconstruction. But the element of the Marshall Plan that's important from this perspective is not this huge transfer of money that the U.S. made to Europe. It's what happened with it, because each individual country in Europe after World War II, when the Marshall Fund was initiated, had their own ideas of how they were going to use that money to uh, reconstruct themselves. The Marshall Plan was also a political action plan. It was promoted because there was a great fear of the political consequences of mass unemployment and disaffection. And that point in the 1940s, the late 1940s, we were worried about the rise of communism across all of Europe and a number of countries that were um, basically electing uh, communist uh, governments. Of course, this is not the concern right now. We're concerned about how we rebuild our democracy. But after COVID, you know, this is like being at war, like World War I and World War II. We need something dramatic. We need some political action to move ourselves forward. But the main point is that communities and regions need to do these things for themselves they need to have their own plan you can't just drive it from the center and that was the lesson of the Marshall Plan it wasn't just a transfer of money it was other countries turning themselves around and then turning around their regions. so it's just it's that kind of approach there's going to have to be some infusions of you know cash and that's what's happening you know right now in this wrangling on Capitol Hill about the um, infrastructure bill the That is really the contours of what I'm talking about here. But the important thing is what people do with it
0: in their own communities. There's so much we could talk about with regard to that, Fiona. Let me ask you something on everyone's mind, which is about your service in the presidency of Donald Trump. You were a witness to history. You were also a witness, as you describe in your book, to a president who was solipsistic, a president who only saw things through his own eyes and how it would affect or hurt or benefit him, how it related to him. You saw a president who was um, pathetically uh, a subject or a victim of manipulation. He was open to that. Uh, He didn't study his brief, and so he could be used and, and abused by various political leaders. And Putin tried to do that in front of your own eyes. Um, Tell me, were there times in this service to this president where you felt you needed to sort of cry out, you know, there's a crime in, in action or there's a national security risk I have to flag? Were there moments other than the ones we know about through your impeachment testimony where you really felt torn about resigning, where you felt torn about coming forward to alert people, to raise the alarm that this man is a danger to our, to our country? Well,
1: first of all, you know, I think that sometimes the way this question gets framed about, you know, focusing on Trump actually underscores the problem that we're facing right now. Because when people enter public service, you know, they're entering the service of the country. They take an oath to the Constitution, you know, they take the oath of office, um, you know, basically undertaking to do their jobs for the larger, greater good. You don't take an oath of office to express fealty to some individual. And I think, you know, we've all lost, um, you know, kind of sense now of the preamble to the Constitution, we the people of the United States, that, you know, we're not enthralled to one individual. And what I saw when I went into the NSC and into the government was an awful lot of people actually upholding that oath of office. So behind the scenes, there were people with very similar concerns to myself. And I had entered uh, the um, administration at the request of, you know, people behind the scenes to try to tackle the um, after effects of the influence operation that the Russians had launched against us in 2016, their intrusion into the whole electoral and democratic system. And the whole, you know, hope was that behind the scenes, I could work with others to try to push back on this, make sure it didn't happen again and deal with the fallout. What I discovered, of course, while I was there, that the problems were far deeper than Russia. Russia just exploited the cleavages, the divisions, the polarization in the United States and was feeding on the dirty politics. In fact, what shocked me the most was just how similar White House politics were to the Kremlin. And I actually had much less insight (laughs) into the individuals there. I knew more about, I've said this in another context, I knew more about Vladimir Putin and you know the people and the clique around him that I did about some of the players that I now know more than I you know care to know about in uh, <laughs> the US uh, context, and that was deeply disturbing. And I did yeah. you know speak frequently uh, inside as many other people did. You know I found well we were already seeing kind of a flurry of books, but I can just tell you all the people who have not written books, who were political appointees, many of the people who you know people saw testifying with me as fact witnesses at uh, the impeachment hearings, we'd already all spoken out. There was, um, I think, you know, a strong shared consensus that as one very prominent person put to me, you know, uh, during a private moment that the Republic was in trouble. And we all had to pull together to do what we could without any fanfare, without drawing attention to ourselves, but just to do what we possibly could to head off what was um, a real disaster that was produced domestically, not from overseas. and. I'd already decided when I went in that I would not stay longer than two years. I said a little bit over that time. I'd got some really wise words from a colleague at Brookings, Martin Indyk, um, who had been you know, the special envoy for dealing with the Israeli and Palestinian uh, conflict, that you must not become part of a problem. You can only stay as long as you think you're part of a solution. And very quickly, you know, I started to worry about this um, advice. I'd also had a lot of people telling me, don't do it. You'll be forever tainted. I felt that it was worth trying because of, you know, the magnitude of the problems and, you know, the importance of having public service, even in the darkest of times. I mean, these are lessons that I took from my previous public service in uh, both the Bush and the Obama administrations. And I knew I'd be serving alongside people that I'd worked with there, too. I mean, these amazing professionals across uh, the United States uh, government. But it was really... You know, as I was coming to that second year when I was contemplating leaving, that it became very apparent that I and others are going to have to speak out more broadly about the problems inside of the United States and what we're doing to ourselves. And of course, the testimony was part of that. I hadn't anticipated it, but I had anticipated that, you know, when I got out, I got back to the Brookings Institution, you know, where I was on leave from, that I would have to start speaking out about the things that I'd seen. And ultimately, you know, I decided to write the book, to try to lay some of this out there as well. But you're absolutely right. I mean, there were so many times where lots of questions were raised about what is happening to us. And again, Trump is a symptom. He's not the cause of many of the things uh, that we saw. And while we were so fixated on what the Russians were doing or not doing, Mm -hmm. we were neglecting the kind of scrutiny that we needed to, to have on the domestic problems in the United States. So we really need to bring ourselves back to home, you know, to look at what we need to do to... Fix this dilemma we find ourselves in.
0: I guess what I'm getting at, Fiona, and your question your answer is perfect. But um, do you think that the American public should have known sooner before you know a whistleblower came forward from the CIA and alerted uh, the forces that be about his concern about a potential crime in 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 action from the top of the White House? Do you think that the American people should have known sooner from people like you and others that the republic was in danger? I mean, in reporting for my own work, I learned there were many Fiona Hills, right, who were all clutching together to try to provide this protective wall. But but should there have been a way for you and others to communicate that earlier? Well,
1: uh, in
0: terms of the phone
1: call, because I'm sort of thinking about the sequencing of this, so I had actually left the National Security Council the week or so before the phone call. So I wasn't actually privy to it until you and everybody else was when the transcript was released and um, put in the paper. And that really, I think, crystallized what had been happening on the Ukraine front you know, for many months. Now, I myself only learned about some of the information that helped me put the pieces together in real time, both during the closed-door depositions when... In the line of questioning made it very clear that all kinds of things were going on behind the scenes when I looked at the depositions um, of my other, you know, colleagues from the government and when I heard all of the testimony. So I think we were all learning in real time, myself and many others included, about all of these different parts of a story that we didn't have all of the pieces to pull together. So in a way it was kind of a, a political version of, you know, nine eleven. When you remember all the intelligence um, agencies had little bits of information, but there wasn't really a kind of a way of putting it all together until the disaster happened. And I think that's kind of a problem of our system because, you know, nobody has complete information. In fact, you know, people like yourself, Carol, and other investigative journalists probably know more than some of the actors themselves inside of the government because you're talking to so many other people. And, you know, we're not communicating particularly well um, among ourselves. So um I think absolutely we need to have much more transparency. There needs to be aware of the complaints and other uh you know concerns rising up through the system so it doesn't take a you know a brave whistleblower to have to kind of come forward of having you know, pieced it together. I certainly went up all of the channels of um concerns. I talked to Ambassador Bolton you know, on many occasions, you know, his predecessor. Uh, General McMaster about concerns on other issues, because it wasn't just Ukraine uh, where, you know, we were concerned. It's just taken a lot of time for all of that information to get out there. But I think the first problem is about the nature of the presidency itself. We need to find a system making sure that we don't elect people who are counterintelligence risks in the sense, or domestic political risks, in the sense that we don't know enough about their backgrounds. You know, I as um, a public servant and anybody else, you know, all the people who are being held up in Congress now for, you know, having their positions, you know, filled all the ambassadors and assistant secretaries. They have to go through a really, you know, deep background check, heavy scrutiny, every aspect of their lives and their financial matters and, you know, their family ties. We don't do that for our presidents. That's absolutely <laughs> absurd. It's absurd. And i I just like to kind of put it out there. There's a problem in the system, you know, that somebody can be a candidate by not just concealing their tax returns, but, you know, having all of these other things that they can literally get away with. No wonder President Trump actually said that he could shoot somebody on Fifth Avenue and get away with it, because as president, everyone is given a remarkable pass, and they can put their family members into um, key positions. They can put their cronies into key positions. They can name people to positions. There's something wrong with that fetishization of the presidency, and we need to fix that because in other countries, there's a lot more scrutiny on their top leaders as well.
0: Yeah, we've had a lot of scrutiny on the ter- in terms of the Fourth Estate documenting every um, interesting and, and 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 frightening episode in the White House. But you're right that so much of this has been allowed, not like a shooting on Fifth Avenue, but similar. Um, You and I share another um, theory, which is that from the reporting I've done and from your own personal experience, that many believe inside the White House, President Trump was basically not very organized and disciplined. And if somebody who was more of a disciplined and organized sort of Putin-esque populist in, in this presidency, our democracy would, and our republic would truly be, uh, in the ICU and, and in danger of, of collapsing. Tell me what you think we do to protect ourselves from that.
1: Well, we have to, you know, really figure out some of the issues that I'm talking about here. I mean, careful vetting of candidates. I mean, of course, that will require some legislative changes. And I'm, you know, really very concerned about the capacity of Congress to do this right now. One um, key thing is to hold members of Congress accountable. Uh, to their office of office, to their undertakings to serve um, their constituencies and the American people. And, you know, call them out when they're lying uh, about, um, you know, critical issues like who won the 2020 um, election. Because what I uh, foresee happening here is all of the members of Congress and the Republican Party have given um, lip service or refused to repudiate um, President Trump's lies about the 2020 election. Um, you know, Vice President Pence, Um, Nikki Haley, all the kind of people who are coming out now clearly wanting to run for the presidency are showing that they themselves are wanting to adopt these same kind of strategies that uh, President Trump has adopted. It's the style of Trump. And they will, of course, be much more competent in their their approach and in in, in their governance. But they're also trying to build their own presidencies and their own candidacies on the back of a lie. And we have to keep calling that out. And I think, you know, part of the problem is really in the reporting on this. You know, I, in the um, testimony in the clip that you opened, just called it out. This is a fictional narrative. We shouldn't be giving credence to it. And the way that reporting works, I mean, Vladimir Putin takes advantage of this as well in the U.S. um, media. We always do on the one hand and on the other hand. If on the other hand is a lie, we shouldn't be giving it any credence and when vice presidents and you know former un ambassadors and senators and congress people basically give credence to a lie that's when our democracy is in trouble you know george orwell basically said you know in a time of universal deceit telling the truth is a revolutionary act well then we'll all better be individual revolutionaries here because we're already in orwell's 1984 and that's the cause of the year that I went off to study Russia, and I didn't think that I would be seeing 1984 in the United States. I really didn't.
0: Nor did any of these viewers tuning in today, Dr. Hill. We're running out. Of, we're out of time. It's been a fascinating conversation. Thank you so much for joining us. And to check out what other interviews we have coming up, please head to WashingtonPostLive.com to register and to find more information about speakers like Dr. Hill. Again. My pleasure. Thanks so much for joining us, Dr. Hill. Have a great day, everybody.
1: Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.